The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Uh, Now this morning we are on our fourth and our final week as we walk through Covenant's new mission statement, which helps define for us what we as a church are called to be doing. What is it that we are supposed to do? And if you haven't heard it yet, let me just share with you. Our new mission statement moving forward is bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. And this morning, as I finish out this series, what I'm going to particularly focus on is this idea of our broken world. You know, last week, uh, Jesus, (laughs) last week when Jesus preached, last week when Jerry preached, (laughs) I didn't do that on purpose. He's not even here, so he doesn't even get credit for it. Um, Last week when Jerry preached, the key idea that we took away from that sermon was the idea that our deepest need above all other things is a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our deepest need. Um, And this week we're going to continue to look at that, but the reality is as many of us have this real honest question, which is, okay, yes, I'm saved. But what about the craziness that is still my life and and my mess? Um, Christians aren't perfect. Amen? Okay. Um, And contrary to popular belief, if if you're just checking us out, kind of figuring out what Christianity is, we don't think that we're perfect. Amen? We know that we're not. I have lots of really deep needs still today. Um, And so the question, what does Jesus and the gospel have to say uh, about my life after that moment that I get saved? It has has a lot to say. What about the the brokenness that I see in our world? What does the gospel have to say about it? It has a lot to say about it. And so my prayer is that this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 61 from the Old Testament, that it's going to show us that, frankly, the, the, the broken world is not just out there. And it is. It is broken out there. But the reality is, is that the broken world is also in here. More so than that, the broken world is here. It's me. It's inside of me. Jesus came to save our broken world. So four applications I want to offer you this morning as we walk through Isaiah chapter 61. The first is this, his anointing to do gospel restoration, followed by our anointing to bring gospel restoration. Number three, our deep needs and our broken world. And number four, our future restored world. So number one, his anointing to do 
gospel restoration. Look back at the scripture with me now. This first verse, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Question, who's the me? Who's talking? It's a good question. Uh, Many so-called scholars, some better than others, have suggested all kinds of things to answer that question. They've suggested biblical characters such as a man named Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast. Jehoiachin, Moses, Uzziah, Ezekiel, a king, Cyrus, um, Isaiah, the man who wrote the book. Or is it me? Is it you? Is it some particular church or some well-known pastor in the United States or in some other country? Is it some particular ministry that really succeeds or thrives at what they are doing? I would suggest to you to cut to the chase that if we were to narrow it down to any one of those things or to identify any one of those things and say, yes, that's what the passage is talking about, we would be in error. What do we know from this passage? We know two very clear identities, right? That's where the passage begins. First, it says, the Spirit is upon me. That is the Holy Spirit, to be clear. The second person of the Trinity, very God. And the Spirit marks the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Look at earlier in the book, Isaiah chapter 11 plays this out very clearly when it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But the passage doesn't end there. It goes on to say, the Lord anointed me. The Lord, when it says Lord and Lord God, it is referring to, it is the name Yahweh, the I Am, the All-Powerful One, the name which was too holy to be spoken in the Israelite culture. The book of Isaiah, in fact, the entire theme is that Yahweh will save, will restore, will redeem His people. In fact, Isaiah's very name, it literally means Yahweh will save. And so the entire Old Testament is this longing and this waiting and this anticipation for God the Father to bring gospel restoration, for for him to fulfill his covenant promises that he had made from the very beginning. Uh, The next book over, look at how the prophet Jeremiah explains this. He says this in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Fast forward 700 years to the sleepy little region of Galilee in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, Jesus. The Bible says that he showed up in the power of of the Holy Spirit. And as he begins his public ministry in a packed synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, it says that he stood up and took a scroll. And he opened up that scroll and he began to read. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
and every eye was fixed upon him. And then he said this, today I fulfill this scripture. The Christ is here. The Messiah is here. Jesus, the anointed one, is here. And he brings good news, literally the word gospel. And it's what only Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God can do. Only Jesus can do the work of gospel restoration. He alone can end poverty. He alone can mend broken hearts. He alone can break physical and spiritual captivity. And if you want to understand what the Bible means when it uses a word like restoration and what we hope that this church means when we use a word like restoration, Jesus goes on in this moment, in this scene in Luke chapter 4, and he explains that the grace that he has is for the outcast. He explains that the grace that he has is for broken people. He explains that the grace that he has is for Gentiles, is for the widow again. It is for the sick. It is for those who are overlooked And as he lays out the wideness of Father God's grace, as he explains how scandalous it is that anyone in the world can come and receive grace from God, do you know what those people in that room did? It's amazing. It says that they literally tried to seize him and throw him off a cliff. You remember that passage? They were so disgusted suddenly by what he said when he explained it that the gospel was for broken people that they rejected him and wanted to kill him right then and there. Why? Why? Think about that. I think maybe two reasons. There is something deep within the heart of all mankind that when we are told that we are broken, we go, no, 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 not me. You ever had that conversation with somebody as you're maybe trying to help them understand what grace is and what Jesus has done, and they say, you know what, here's the deal, I'm not really that bad. We all have that impulse within us. But there's something more that's going on here. See, they reject Jesus' grace towards people that are outside of their own self-righteous circle. We might use a word like legalism today to describe what's going on there. This was Israel. This was God's chosen people who have completely lost sight of the gospel, who don't understand who Jesus is and ultimately will reject him by nailing him to a cross. We want to be a church that follows the example of Jesus here, not the example of this crowd. Amen? Number two, what about us then? Our anointing to bring gospel restoration. Look again to the book of Isaiah chapter 52 this time. I love this passage. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. See, Isaiah 61 is ultimately and fully and completely fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, and yet God's people are invited to join him in his mission of gospel restoration. We get to be the bringers. As we thought through how exactly do we cast this mission to our church, the word bring came to life because we recognize that every single person who knows Jesus can be in some way or another 
a bringer. Whether that is the way this passage describes it, that, that we proclaim it, or it be that we explain in a, in a relational conversation, whether it be that we invite someone in in some way, we share with them in some way, we show them, or we just get to live it out in a way that they see there's something different here, there's something that's drawing them to Jesus. All of us can bring. Here's the key. I don't do the good news. Jesus does. I bring the good news. You know, when Jesus was calling his first disciples, there's this little story. It's only a verse and a half long, but it communicates loudly. A story of two brothers, Andrew and Peter. And the scripture says that Andrew got this idea, and watch what he does with Peter. Listen to John chapter 1. He, that's Andrew, first found his own brother Simon, or Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That's us. We get to be Andrew. We get to draw Peter. We get to bring him so that he too can see and experience Jesus. It reminds me who I am and what I do in God's story. So who am I? Who are we? Who here would say, I was broken until the day that Jesus Christ saved my life? All of us. Who here would say, Jesus saved me, and in that moment, he freed me from captivity, but to be clear, I'm still a work in progress. Me. He's still doing that good work. The scripture says that he is faithful to complete it, but I'm still a work in progress. Who here would say, I know at least one other person on the planet who also struggles and is broken in some way or another? Every single one of us. We know people, we know who we are, and we know what we are called to do. And the best way to be able to express that to a hurting world is to say, listen, Jesus did it for me. He's still doing it in me every day, and he can do it for you too. So who is this passage in Isaiah 61 really about? To be super clear, when it talks about the afflicted and the poor, the brokenhearted, those who are captive to something, those who are mourning or grieving, it is talking about all people. Because, brothers and sisters, the grace that saves us is also the grace that changes us. There is never a moment when we graduate from the gospel, amen? We always need him. We always need his grace, his forgiveness. You never outgrow it. The gospel is for the lost and the found. It's for all of us. You know, the gospel allows me, as, a, as someone who's been a Christian now for 20 years, to be able to admit that I am still angry, bitter, and controlling. I've got issues. And I can tell you about when I was in high school, there was a moment when I received Jesus as my Savior. And in that moment, I went from death to life. In that moment, my sins were put on Jesus' cross. And in that moment, his perfect righteousness was applied to me and there was nothing that I did to earn it. In that moment, I was reserved a place in heaven. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God filled me. But I'm still a mess. Call Anna, she'll tell you. I'm still a broken mess because I still lose sight of the fact that my identity is ultimately a blood-bought son 
of God. The, the song that we just sang, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who I am. My identity is founded on that reality. I forget that all the time. I start to make myself the center of the universe rather than him. And it is so easy for me to turn back to the sewers of sin to try and find my hope and my strength and my identity rather than finding it in Jesus Christ. God's still working on me. He's still working on me. You know, the Bible uses the word justification to explain what he means. That moment when we are saved, when we are justified before God and our place in heaven is secured. And then it uses the word sanctification to describe everything from that moment forward until I go to heaven that God is doing and working in me, working out that brokenness and exchanging it for the glory and the goodness of God in my life. Romans chapter 6, the entire chapter, is the best place to be able to understand just how that works, what God is doing. I just want to read you a couple of those verses so you can see both the justification and how it pours out into the sanctification. It says this, beginning in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's justification. Now listen to sanctification. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what we're called to be. It's an invitation. There's nothing else like it. Number three, our deep needs then and our broken world. There is one thing, and only one thing, that I love about election day or election season. And and that is that in that moment, especially as we lead up to the, the big day, everybody, even the politicians, admit that the world is broken. It's only that day, and as soon as the week is over, we're done. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. But for that one more so, we get to see the truth. As Christians are the only ones, though, those who have been redeemed by Jesus are the only ones who are willing to admit, yes, the reality there is a huge problem. Brokenness is real. But here's where, here's where we separate ourselves. The problem is in me, and the solution is not within me. It's Jesus. I need him. Our broken world. Jesus alone can save and Jesus alone can restore us in our many deep needs. And so that's why Jesus can quote Isaiah here and he begins by saying that he brings good news to the poor. You know, the reality, there are many who are obviously overwhelmed by debt. Many who are struggling with a low-income situation of one or another. And the gospel empowers me. 
invites me to meet physical, financial needs. I I have grown this year to love and appreciate more than I ever did before our, our mercy ministry here at this church, our mercy team, and this mercy fund that is able to help people when they have specific physical, specifically financial needs. The gospel empowers that. You know, one of the things that we as a church in conjunction with many churches here in this county have sought to do the last several years is something that we call Love Brevard. And though it is sort of a week and a month of of the year in which we go out and we try to offer up tangible acts of care and of service and of love in the name of Christ, we meet a physical need. But the desire behind that is not only that it would not simply be a week or a month, that it would be a lifestyle for us, but that it would also help to ultimately reveal that behind that physical need is an even greater spiritual poverty, an even greater spiritual need. And that's who we want to be as a church. We want to help people see ultimately even their spiritual debt. You know, on this missions trip up to, to Panama City, there were, there were several conversations and relationships that stand out to me now as I think back. One in which I, I've never had this experience in my life thus far where I've offered to somebody that I didn't know, hey, can I pray for you? And this man said no. We had just been serving him physically and caring for his roof, but he was not interested in prayer. There was another relationship where we were able to come alongside a family and help them, as you saw, and we invited them to church. I said, no, I, I can't go. I don't have any clean clothes. You know, in those conversations, the desire behind them was not to embarrass or hurt anybody, but rather it was to, to offer physical restoration in some way that might lead to ultimately sharing spiritual hope and life and restoration. This same verse uses the phrase to bind up the brokenhearted. We saw that too on this same exact trip. There was another man the last day, he and his wife, we came to their, their home and their, their, um, their mobile home had really just been chewed up by the storm. Um, their whole property was a complete mess and he was fairly significantly physically disabled because he had served uh, in, the, in the public incarceration system years earlier and had been attacked and he had never fully healed. And despite that situation years ago, and as he's looking over his property that's just torn to bits, we stop and we eat lunch with this man, and he prays, and he begins by, by, by saying, God, I'm so blessed. He says, God, thank you so much for what you have done for me. And every single one of us just stopped and took notice. This man got it. He had physical needs, very real ones. But he understood that though there was a lacking physically, that ultimately he was overflowing because he had the grace of Jesus Christ in his life. The Bible says that Jesus comes and we get to be a part of proclaiming freedom to the captives. This is a very specific reference to earlier, to Leviticus chapter 25, which was the year of Jubilee, which meant that literally every 50th year in Israel, anybody who was a servant, anybody who was a slave, on that 50th year, regardless of circumstances, they were set free. Sounds a lot like grace. Any debts that had been accrued for any reason, in any amount, on that 50th year, they were all erased. Sounds a lot like grace. You know, we're captive to 
a lot of stuff. Even today, a lot of stuff. Isaiah 61, verse 7, just a few couple verses later, look at what it says here. A promise of God, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Disgrace or guilt, shame. In a nutshell, you know what those two are? Your guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says you are something wrong. And many of us in one way or another, Christian or not, find ourselves so often held captive by the chains of disgrace and shame. And that captivity leads itself so often to chasing after other things to to make it better. We find ourselves addicted to food and to shopping, to pornography and to gaming and to alcohol and to drugs or whatever it might be. Or we feel like we are just held captive to a completely busted relationship with our spouse. Or we're in the chains of what feels like just a completely busted relationship with with our children. Or we feel like we are held chained by mistakes made in our past, things that we wouldn't want to talk about. An abortion, that we're held by those chains. And yet the root issue is this. The gospel brings freedom. Jesus breaks the chains of guilt. He breaks the chains of shame. He reminds us that we were bought at a price. We are no longer our own. He has saved us and made us new. And not only that, he is changing us into his image. And so we know that we are free in Christ. The best worship I've ever experienced in my entire life was on a missions trip in Ecuador. We were in a prison. We got ushered into a room that was little more than a closet, and they shoehorned 50 of us, our team, and these men, all believers, in this prison, probably for life. And the worship that I saw in their hearts, that I heard from their mouths, that I saw on their faces, blew me away. Because yes, they were in a cell, but they were free. They were free. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He wants us to know that something has changed, that because of Jesus there is a new era. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation, past situations will change and the new is about to begin because God reigns. His kingdom is here and because he is king, he can and will offer a royal pardon for your sins and he will adopt you personally into his royal family. The Lord's favor is is here. And then he goes on to say the day of vengeance of our God. What could that possibly mean in conjunction with the year of the Lord's favor? The day of vengeance means that God hates sin. And so with him, we hate sin as well, and we hate the effects of sin. And it's a promise that all injustice will be made right. It's a promise that we get to be a part of bringing gospel restoration in our city, a city where we know, a world where we know there is injustice and that we can be a church that cares for and loves the fatherless, the widow, the victim, the abused, the hurting, the forgotten, 
the immigrant, because we know in one way or another this is who we were too. And only Jesus has saved us. He says, comfort, comfort for all who mourn. He says he's going to replace ashes for a garment of praise. In our modern world, it may be a little bit hard to connect with that, but for me, the most helpful moment in all the Old Testament is this moment when uh, Jacob, the father, finds out that his son Joseph has been killed. And the scripture describes that he got down on hands and knees and that he began to crawl through the dust and the sand and the dirt of that desert that he was in. And he picked up scoops of that dirt and just began to dump those ashes and that dirt on his head as he just expressed in any way that he could find the grief and the pain and the mourning because he knew that his son was dead. And the scripture says comfort all who mourn, replace ashes with a garment of praise. We know that death is real. We know that there are so many among us that have lost people even recently. So many among us who are sick, who are grieving, who are suffering. Many even in our own church who are homebound for one reason or another and we get to care for them and we get to pray with them and we get to give them things like a ride to church or a ride to a doctor because we want to love them and express comfort to those who are mourning. May we be a church that brings comfort because as Paul says, we know the God of all comfort. You know, one of the women that I I respect so much in our church is Frida Rigby. And many of you know her story so well and you've been praying alongside of her. As you know, she has fought and battled cancer over and over and over again. And from one hospital bed to the next, she was able to share the good news of the gospel with her brother who had never believed. And even in the twilight moments of his life, from her place of pain, she was able to share the good news of Jesus. And though he is no longer with us here, we know that today he is in heaven because he received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. That's what it means. That's what the call is here. It goes on to say that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, that God's people would be called this, that they would be grafted into God's vine, that they would be rescued from the desert and brought into God's perfect garden, that we would be as a church, as believers, that we'd be seen now as a well-rooted tree that is fruitful, not because of anything that we ever could do, but because we are being sanctified by our loving Father. What an image. And it says that they, we, shall build up the ancient ruins, that the city that we live in physically, literally, might be rebuilt and restored, that what the enemy in so many ways has torn down, that it might be rebuilt. And whether that means rolling paint on walls at a local public school, or that means sitting knee to knee with somebody and praying with them to receive Jesus Christ, that our broken world would be restored. Finally, number four, our future. We have a future restored world that is coming. Listen to the very tail end of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Revelation picks up this same idea when Jesus himself, it says, and he who was seated on a throne said, behold, I am making all things new. A future of restoration. You know, in our family, um, we lost three people that were really, really important to us, irreplaceable people um, in this last year and a half. And, and one of the ways that I personally have been able to just process that grief is a song that probably many of you know by, by Chris Tomlin. The perfect title It's called Home. Um, we played this at, at a funeral. And I just want to read to you a lyric that, that reminds me and helps me feel and grasp hold of this reality. The song says, this world is not what it was meant to be. All this pain, all this suffering, there's a better place waiting for me in heaven. Blinded eyes will finally see. The dead will rise on the shores of eternity. The trump will sound. The angels will sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I am going home. I know where they are. They're in heaven. And one day, guys, the broken world will be unbroken. What a promise. This is God's story that we are a part of. It begins with creation, and there there was a fall. Redemption has come, and we look forward to complete and ultimate restoration one day with Jesus. The Messiah will return to earth, and he will bring with him an eternal year of God's favor. Isaiah 61.11 says the redeemed will be clothed in the garments of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness as his bride. What better invitation is there than that? If you have never known Jesus as your Savior, all he says, admit that you can't do it yourself. You're broken. You're a sinner. And Jesus will literally cover you in his perfect righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees the perfection of Jesus and no longer your guilt and your shame. Today is the day. Believe. Receive him as your Savior. It is also that moment when he will bring with him the final day of vengeance. And so the call is even more clear to repent Turn away from sin, turn to Jesus and believe. Because God is a God of justice. He rejects injustice. And as he makes all things new in heaven, there will be no sin. God is coming and he is a God of justice. If you have not received him as your savior, let today be that day. And believer, let us move forward from here remembering that we have been saved by Christ, but we are still a work in progress. And for every day that we have remaining here on this earth, that we get to be a part of his mission, bringing gospel restoration to our broken world. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our God, Holy Spirit and Savior, Lord, we praise you and we thank you this morning because on our own, we were all hopeless. And yet you sent your Son into the world 
to set free the captive, to bind up the brokenhearted, to replace poverty with overflowing, to, makes us, to make us oaks of righteousness, to rebuild the city. Father, you are the Savior. Our deepest need this morning, we declare, is salvation in Jesus Christ. And Father, we hunger for more and more of you, Lord, that you might continue to change and rearrange our hearts and our lives. Make us pleasing in your sight, not for our glory, but for your name, for your renown, Father. And we pray that the nations, that this city, that our family, our friends, people we haven't even met yet, Father, that we might be able to bring gospel restoration in the lives of people, that they might come to know you as Savior, that they might experience healing from wounds. We recognize that only Jesus can do gospel restoration, and so our hope is in you this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.